Welcome to The Block Podcast, and thanks so much for tuning in. The Block is a young adult ministry of Celebration Church that meets on Thursday nights at a Metairie New Orleans campus. You can keep up with us by following our Instagram by searching at thebridgecm. We hope that you're both encouraged and challenged by this message. Um, well, good evening, guys. It's wonderful to be here with you all. I come from the great state of New York, and that's okay. Are people from New York here? Oh, we have a few. Okay. Um, I am from Rochester. Most people, when they hear of New York, they think of New York City, and they don't realize there's an entire state. So I come from the state, and New York City is a city in the state. So I grew up right on the Canada border, and um, so the snowmageddon that, like, hit the south, like a few like days ago, I now live in Atlanta, and I'm like, seriously, it'll be like this, and we still go to school, okay? So um, hope you enjoyed a little bit of our northern weather for you all. We, we do our best to make sure that nobody misses out on the winter wonderland. And uh, so hopefully you guys enjoyed whatever little trickles of snow you're able to get. But I want to dive into something, um, a topic that maybe it's a question that maybe some of you have had. I never actually planned on doing a talk on a topic like this, but I travel around the world and speak on a range of different topics surrounding Christianity. When somebody says to me, I think this whole God thing is crazy, I'm like, great, you're my new best friend, let's talk. So I enjoy getting into conversations with people who think that Christianity is made up or that it's all about fairy tales or any of these kind of things. And one of the popular, most popular questions I would hear was, look, Alicia, if God exists, why isn't he just more obvious? Like, why not just appear in the sky and tell us, right? I would hear this all the time. Now, I spent the last four years in Boston. I now live in Atlanta, but I spent the last four years in Boston. And the idea in Boston is, oh, because there's all these Ivy League schools like Harvard and there's MIT and there's Boston University and Boston College and Emerson. I mean, the list goes on. There's a lot of schools in Boston. They say it about one out of every four people is a college student in Boston. And so the idea is that, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, that's cute. But see, if you were as smart as me, you went to where I went to school, you would see that this is all foolishness. And so being in that environment, I got in a lot of great discussions with people who were surprised that Christians actually had something intellectual to say. That Christians actually believe what they believe in, not just because somebody had in them a Bible, but because they've actually found it to be true. Because there's evidence demonstrating the credibility of the scriptures. There's evidence demonstrating Jesus' existence outside of the Bible, not just in. I can prove to you Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That he lived, that he died, it was Pontius Pilate who crucified him. Resurrection, obviously much more controversial. But at least the life and death from from manuscripts that are completely non-biblical. Because it was written about in just historical documents. And so as I began to have these conversations with people... A lot of popular questions would come up, and this was one of them. This whole idea of, if God exists, why is he not more obvious? So I formed this whole talk, and I titled it, Does God Play Hide and Seek? Because I think, oh, well, look at that. I didn't know I had a PowerPoint. Well, well, thank you to my PowerPoint team, whenever you are. I guess I will just give you a signal, and then you'll know when to switch it. But you don't have to switch it yet. Thank you. Um, There it is. So does God play hide and seek? Um, because I think when people think of this idea of God, they think of 
the search for God or the quest of God is like some cosmic game of hide and seek. Now, I loved playing hide and seek as a kid, okay? I thought it was so much fun. You go up to a tree and you count and you open up your eyes and you have no idea where anybody went. So maybe you like go this way and you're trying to see if they're over here and you can't find them. And then you go this way, look behind this bush, this tree, this house, whatever, and hopefully you find them. But you don't really know where they are. And I think this is, this is the way that a lot of people kind of envision this, in, this way that we search for God, man's quest for God or man's search for God, and we want to know if he's there. But what if we change the hide-and-seek game up a little bit? What if you went up to that tree and you counted to 20 or 30 and you opened up your eyes and you didn't know where anybody went, so you started walking this way. And as you were walking this way, you heard beep, beep, hmm. And then when you walked this way, you heard colder, colder. So you, okay. So you may not know exactly where somebody is, but you know that something is there because you have hints or clues pointing you in a particular direction. I think that this is the way that we need to envision man's quest for God and man's search for God. Because the reality is, is that God wants us to know him. And I think he gives us clues all around of his existence, these little tiny beeps, beeps, or warmer, you're getting warmer. Now, it is true that there are several places in the Bible where God does hide himself, and it says this. And for a fact, or in fact, in Isaiah 45, 15, it says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me. So it seems like there are times in life in which God does hide himself. But see, here's the thing. Christianity talks of a God who wants to be found. So how does he reveal himself? Well, potentially one way is kind of what we talked about through little, little clues or little hints. How many have ever looked at a sunset? And found the, 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 the sun and the colors and the way it bounced on the water. Like all of these things to be so beautiful. It's weird how something that doesn't even save any words. It doesn't utter any words. Almost like draws words out of us. Wow. Right? Beautiful. I was speaking to, to a, a friend of mine who's a professor and he's an atheist. And I said to him, you know... Has there ever been a time in your life, he's in his 70s now, has there ever been a time in your life in which you wish there was a God? You wish God existed? He was like, nope, not really. He's like, I've never really felt like I needed anything or felt like I, was, um, I needed to search for him. And he said, but you know what? There have been times when I've been struck by the beauty of creation and been sorry that there was no one to thank and when he said that to me, I was like, that is so profound. Think about how profound it is. Like, you almost want to, by the beauty that you see around you, to utter a thank you to something. Don't you think that's a hint? Now, that doesn't mean, I'm going to be fair, that doesn't mean Jesus died, rose from the dead, all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean Jesus is divine, that we should worship him, he did miracles. No, you can't go that far with it. Okay, I've got to be fair with that. But all I'm saying is potentially God gives us these general ideas or these general clues in his creation that there is something there that just lets us say, 
Why do I feel like I want to say thank you? It's just these clues, guys. Just these tiny beeps. Doesn't mean we know the identity, but it just lets us know that there is a journey that we should maybe start to embark upon. And so I think that's one of the ways in which God reveals himself to us. Now, people would say to me, yeah, that's cute and all, Alicia. I get it. But here's the thing. Why doesn't God just strike his lightning bolt? Just, let's just make it obvious. Like, let's just get rid of all the doubt, all the questions, just to strike as a lightning bolt. So let's think about this. Here you are walking down the street, and a lightning bolt strikes in front of you. What do you do? Do you run before it and bow your knee? Thank you, God, you are just so amazing. Or do you run the mess out of there? Okay? Here's the thing, guys. If God was to come so strongly like that, we wouldn't run towards him. We'd run away. So he cannot come in a way that is so forceful that we are terrified or that we feel scared. In fact, I want to read you a few verses when God actually did speak loudly to his people. And keep in mind, these people knew it was God. And I want you to see how they responded. It's in Exodus. It says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. So they got their lightning, they got their thunder, they got a trumpet blast. They knew it was God. And did they want to bow before him? Or did they pull away? Reason number one why God doesn't reveal himself so strongly, friends, is because the reality is we just couldn't handle him. We just couldn't handle his greatness to our smallness. And so the second reason why he doesn't come so strongly is because if he comes too forcefully to you, it messes with our ability to enter into a genuine relationship with him. Let me give you an example. Let's say I go up to one of you and hold a gun in your head and say, tell me you love me. I mean, you may say, hey, Alicia, I love you. I love what you're wearing. I love New York. I mean, you may say all these things to me. But are you really feeling warm, fuzzy butterflies and hearts and rainbows for me? No, you're not. Why not? Because I've taken away your ability to say no. And the minute you are forced into a relationship messes with the nature of the relationship itself. In order for love to be genuine, it's got to be something that you both mutually enter into. While God extends his hand, can he force us or should he force us? To extend ours? How does that affect the relationship? So God has to reveal himself in a way that preserves our ability to say, hey, you know what? I don't know about this. So what if God did want to reveal himself in a way where we wouldn't run in fear and the relationship would be genuine? Is there a way that he could reveal himself to us? 
I want to use an illustration from um, my favorite author, Philip Yancey. I don't know how many of you had pets growing up. I didn't. Uh, my mother's from the Caribbean, and this idea that there would be something crawling around our house intentionally didn't make sense to her. She's from Jamaica, and in Jamaica, the animals stay outside. There's no reason for them to be in. So the dog thing and the cat thing were out. So I was allowed a guinea pig and fish. And the funny thing about fish is with fish, you know, you are around all the time. You are on fish all the time. You know, they're in the room with you. You go over and you feed them a little bit. You check their little temperature. You make sure the water level's okay. You do all these things to take care of them. But you know what's funny about fish? Is whenever you walk up to the cage, they swim away from you. It's like so frustrating. Like, where are you going, dude? Like, I feed you, I watch out for the water, like I take care of you. Like, what is the deal? See, because the problem to the fish is, even though I do all these things to take care of them, all they see is how big I am and how small they are. And so if I wanted to communicate to the fish, if I wanted them to not run away in fear, what could I do? I could become a fish. And if I became a fish, I could swim around with them, swim into their little houses, eat the food, they wouldn't run away from me because I was just like them. The Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible creator. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You want to know what God would say, you look at Jesus. You want to know what God would do, you look at Jesus. You want to know if if God mourns over certain things or if he rejoices over certain things, you look at Jesus. Because in Jesus, we specifically understand who God actually is. We have a much better revelation of him. So while the sunset and the nature and all these different things around us just point us to the fact that there might be something, Jesus gives us the revelation or the picture or the idea of what that something is like. So God is partly hidden for our benefit. He leaves us clues in creation, and he reveals himself more specifically through the Bible. But yet, even though God does these things, a lot of times we just want to run away from him still. Not because he's too forceful, not because we're not sure if he's there or not, Sometimes we just want to kind of ignore that tug that we feel. Imagine if somebody is knocking on the door of your house and they're waiting for you to open the door. And you're just sitting inside like, what do I do? What do I do? Why wouldn't you open the door? What are some of the things that hold us back from opening the door when we feel God giving us a little bit of a knock. Well, for some people, it's shame. Some people, we think back to the things that we've done wrong. And we cover our faces, and we're just in pain, and we're in agony. And you're like, nobody would love me because if they knew what I did, they wouldn't accept me. So there's no way God will accept me. So I just need to continue to hide from him because what I've done is too big for his love. Some people say, well, you know what? God, if you do these things or if you change these rules, 
Or if you do things my way, then I'll serve you. Right? Kind of like you got this little guy speaking to this big guy. And the, bit, and the big guy is looking down at the little guy, and the little guy is looking up at him. And he's like, all right, I'm going to tell you what to do. And the big guy is looking down like, seriously, dude? Right? God, if you alter these particular things about what you say, then I'll accept you. In other words, God, if you do things like I think you should do things, then I'll find you okay. I was talking with a friend of mine who was an atheist, and I, and I asked her. We had a lot of great conversations. And I asked her one time, I said, have you ever wanted, have you ever wished that there was a God or wanted there to be a God? And she said, yes. Clearly you could tell I keep asking my atheist friends these questions. Um, and she said, yes. I would love it if there was a God. But the God that I want to exist doesn't. So as long as the God that exists, as long as that God is not matching up with what she thinks he should be like, she'll just say, well, I just won't believe in them. It doesn't matter whether or not he's there. It's about, oh, well, I don't like the kind of God he is, therefore I reject him. Some people, and I hear this quite often, say, well, I need evidence. Give me evidence. You give me some evidence, and then I'll believe. I remember I was speaking with a young boy at the University of York in England, and he said this to me, and I said, great. He was, uh, I think, maybe a cosmologist or astrophysicist, some kind of major. I don't even know. He was smart. And we were, we were talking for like 45 minutes, and it was not going anywhere. So I was like, look. I said to him, I said, you know, you, what is it that's keeping you away? And he said, evidence. I need to see a miracle. I said, okay. What if I go on YouTube right now, true story, and show you a video of a woman who I know was good friends with my former youth pastor who was paralyzed for 20-some-odd years. She was hit by a drunk driver on Christmas Day, caused traumatic brain injury, which left her paralyzed in a wheelchair for 20-some-odd years. She's a beautiful voice. She's um, Hispanic. I don't want to say the wrong thing because I know Hispanics are picky. Don't call me Mexican if I'm Puerto Rican, so I won't even come up with the denomination. I know how that goes. So she was Hispanic. Okay. And she had an amazing voice. Um, And uh, she traveled around the world singing in this wheelchair. One day she's at a church service and it is on YouTube. Somebody pulled out their camera while people were praying for her. She's sitting there. They're praying for her. She stands up and she starts to walk. She's walking to this day. They had her on the Buffalo, New York news when she came. She's from Buffalo, New York. She came home to see her mom um, and, and stepped out of the, the SUV in high heels. Even the Buffalo news was there and the local news was there. Okay? So if I show you this video of her, Delia Knox, you can Google it or YouTube it, Delia Knox walking or something like that. Um, Knox is K-N-O-X. She, I was like, if I show you this, will you believe? He was like, No. He's like, because I'd find another way to explain it. Hmm. So you want evidence. I can offer you evidence, but you still won't accept the evidence. Is the problem with God or is the problem with our hearts? How much can God do and reveal himself to you where it's enough? And, you know, he's not, he's not unusual. I mean, if you look at... Um, Jesus' life. Many of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Many, many, many people knew Lazarus was dead because he was dead for several days. Now they see him alive. You would think 
Thousands and whoever was around would come and bow their knee before him. A dead man was now alive because of Jesus. Do you know what the response was? A lot of times people read that story and they're like, wow, that's amazing. Jesus raised somebody from the dead and we don't keep reading. You keep reading into the next chapter. It talks about how the religious leaders were angry. They were angry with Jesus for raising somebody from the dead. And so they begin to plot how they might kill Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead and how they might kill Lazarus again. Even Jesus faced this not enough evidence, which is really just a way of saying, well, no matter what the evidence, my heart will not accept. Now, there's a lot of people who did accept when they saw, when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but so many people didn't. What is it about our hearts that makes us so resistant? And some other people just say, look, you know what? I don't even want to hear it. I don't want to hear the truth. I don't want to know about it. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. I don't really care. And I hope there isn't a God. So they kind of have this like intellectual laziness or like this idea of maybe one day I'll, I'll think about it. Well, interestingly enough, Thomas Nagel, who's a professor of philosophy and law at NYU, actually says this. He says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. He's an atheist. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it's responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't think I'm a rare case. I think a lot of people who say that science will give us all the answers, scientism, that science will tell us everything we need to know, he's saying, I think that they hold the same view I do. We just don't want there to be a God. Friends, we're more likely to suffer the consequences of our own hiding than the consequences of God being hidden from us. Now, as an apologist, I can help you with your issues or your, your questions or your intellectual barriers to Christianity, but no matter how much I want you to know God, I can't love him for you. Some people still are like, all right, Alicia, this is decent stuff. Eh, average. Okay, fine. They said, but you know, the, really, the only reason you're a Christian is because you were born in America. Had you been born in a different country, you would have been another belief system. You only believe in this stuff because of where you were born. Okay, well, let's think about this for a reason, for, for a minute. Number one, we're making the grand assumption that the only place where Christians live is America. Okay? I've traveled around the world. There's Christians everywhere. Okay? Number two, we're making the assumption that there's no other belief system to believe in America. Okay? I grew up in New York. I didn't grow up in the South. There were, in my high school, there was maybe five of us Christians. So the reality is what you should be saying to me is, Elise, if you grew up in America, you should be an atheist. That's really what you should be saying to me, not a Christian. Because in my environment, there weren't very many of us. And so I don't, I don't accept that idea that we assume that there's no Christians in any of these other countries. 
But also people say to me, but what about those in, in remote places? How is God not hidden to them? There's a beautiful passage in Acts 17 that I think addresses this. Acts 17, 24 says that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they would live. God did this so that men would seek him, reach out for him, and find him. Because he's not far from each one of us. God did this so that men would seek him, reach out for him, and find him. He determined the time set for you in the exact place where you would live. Because then you'll seek him, reach out for him, and find him. And this assumption that people in distant parts of the world... The idea that we limit God and his ability to reveal himself to people is a problem with us, not with God. There's an incredible story that I read um, of some missionaries who went to a remote part of, like, northern India. This is back probably 150 or so years ago. And they were like, okay, how do we share the message of Jesus Christ with these remote tribes? So they were trying to figure it out, and so they kind of started talking to some of them. And the sage, like the leader of the tribe, said, hold on a second. He stopped them. You need to listen to our story first. They were like, okay. So the sage began to tell them the story. And he said, in the beginning, there was God. And he made two people. But see, they were enticed by Lita, who's like the devil, to uh, pour rice beer on the ground and make an offering. And so they did. They made the sacrifice. They drank the rice beer. They got drunk. They fell asleep. When they woke up, they realized they were naked. They went on to have seven daughters and seven sons. And after a certain amount of time, these people started doing a lot of evil things. So God took one man, one woman, put them up in a cave and set a flood to wipe out the whole earth. It's a remote tribe. When that finished, he took them out from, above, from up in the cave, brought them back down, and they began to repopulate the earth. But after a period of time, one of the tribes said, you know what, we think we actually want to move to a different location. So they began to move, and they went, um, traveled and traveled, and they hit a mountain range, and they couldn't find out how to get over the mountain range. So they said, you know what we need to do? We need to pray to the gods of the mountains to f- help us find a way through. And he said, and this is where we made our mistake, because they found their way through. But now we're forced to continually sacrifice and worship these gods that we know really aren't real. See, we know there's only one God, and although he can't be seen, he sees everything. And that he created all, and he sustains all. And if they said, if we hadn't gotten so wrapped up in spirit appeasement, we would still know that true God. But we're sure God has written us off as unworthy people and we won't have anything to do with us because we worshiped these spirits. And the missionary said, hey, actually, let me tell you how you can get back in relationship with God. We need to not make the assumption that God is limited in the same way we are. He desires for people to come to know him in a greater way than you ever will. 
And the idea that he can reveal himself in different ways to different people in whatever capacity is not beyond anything. C.S. Lewis, well, sorry, I'll get to that in a second. I would say that I truly believe that there is enough light for somebody to see God if they desire and enough darkness for them to still be blind should they not want him. I want to begin to wrap things up with a true story that I think communicates God's gentleness and pursuit of us and his love for us magnificently. You may or may not have heard of a gentleman named Francis Thompson. He was born in December of 1859. Actually, his birthday is coming up in six days, December 16th, 1859. He went to university for medicine just to please his father, who was a doctor, but he hated it. So he kind of just stopped going one day. He didn't drop out. He just kind of just stopped going, and he moved to London because he loved writing. He loved literature. But it was hard for him. He was pursuing a lot of menial jobs, selling matches, newspapers, and books for three years. During this time, he became addicted to opium. He was starving. He was sick. And he attempted suicide, but survived. In 1887, he sent some poems to a gentleman named Wilfred Mayna, who edited a Catholic literary magazine called Mary England. And he loved the poems. In addition to publishing the poems, he actually said, you know, I need to get Francis Thompson cleaned up. So he sent him to a monastery. While he was at the monastery, he became a Christian. And he sat down one day, several years later, and wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And he talks about in this poem how he, Francis, being utterly and completely lost, was relentlessly pursued by God. And finally found. I'm going to read you. It's kind of long, but I'm going to give you a summary of this, of his poem. Um, it's written in older English. So I'm going to use a, a modern adaptation. No King James Version on you or anything like that. Um, I'm going to use a modern adaptation. So this one's written by Brian Oxley, Sally Oxley, and Sonia Peterson. And actually, you can find this version on YouTube. It's beautiful. But this is the poem that Francis Thompson wrote, paraphrased. I heard a story once, an incredible story, an amazing story. It told of one who was relentlessly faithful and loves with an unwavering love. It was said that he sorrows over broken people. It was said that he tirelessly pursues each lost one, never stopping, never giving up until. But if I let him in, what would I have to give up? What would I have left that I could say was mine? Anyways, it was just a story. Just a story. But if it was only a story, why did thoughts of him trouble my dreams? Glimpses in the moonlight, glimmers in the starlight, and whispers in the midnight breeze. Gradually, the whispers became a sound perceptible only late at night when all the world was silent and asleep except for me and my pounding heart and the distant sound coming closer. Soon I could hear it by day as well, stronger, constant, unhurrying, and now I could tell what it was, the beat of footsteps. Footsteps down the street, footsteps on the sidewalk, footsteps outside the door. He was coming, the one I had heard about coming for me. And so I fled. I sought to fulfill every desire life could offer, but the greater the promise of fulfillment, the greater the letdown. The more intense my cravings became, but the footsteps, they just kept coming nearer. He was chasing me, 
And the desires I had found consumed me more and more, and I was never content. So on and on I fled. But he kept pursuing me relentlessly. His devotion to me was so great, and I feared if I opened my heart, he'd rush in, and I'd be allowed nothing of my own. So I turned away, hoping he would go away and not notice me. And so I ran until there was emptiness and broken dreams. So I turned to doing good, helping the poor and the orphan, but the aching for something more never left. The aching for something greater never left, and I decided to give up on everything. My life was not valuable. Why even live anymore? Why not end the pain now? But then, but then in utter desolation, like a gentle breeze that washed over and around me, I felt the tenderness of his presence. I had no fight left, so I finally listened. Which of those you fled to loved you? I heard him say, and my heart answered, none but you. Only you. And then he said to me, you will have no rest until you rest in me. Come, take my hand and rise. In the darkness of my gloom, I saw his outstretched hand and I heard these words. Though you would not see it, I am the one you've been seeking all your life. And so in that moment, after all the endless miles and all the fruitless searching, I finally quit my running and reached up to the one who had sought me for so long. The lost one was finally found. He required nothing, nothing beyond acceptance. The peace I had longed for and never known flooded my heart, and in having nothing of my own, nothing but his love, I found everything I had lacked. It was finally complete, finally at rest in him. It is us that run and hide what God relentlessly seeks. Why do we go through such great pains to run from him? C.S. Lewis says, the line pulls at your hand. When something breathes beside you in the darkness, it is always shocking to meet life where we, where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which too many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could, and proceed no further with, with Christianity. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. That is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars, what we would call hide and seek, but at burglars, hush, suddenly. Was that a real footsteps in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he had found us. Why does God partly hide himself? So we can enter into a genuine mutual relationship with him. And he gives us enough of himself to make that relationship possible. But he withholds enough so that that relationship is possible. What does God have to do to be more obvious? Come as a lightning bolt, an earthquake, a whirlwind? Or perhaps he's obvious enough in that still small whisper 
that lets us know we are not alone. Imagine you're playing in a soccer game, and uh, it just rained. And so who cares because it's soccer and you're having a great time and you scored and you did great. And um, you're muddy and stinky, but that's the way it is when you play sports, right? So whatever, who cares? You had a great, great game, you played well, and it was a lot of fun. Your mom comes to pick you up because you're all 14. And your mom comes to pick you up and um, she says, how was your game, honey? You said, oh, it was great. I enjoyed it. It was wonderful. And she says, well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. By the way, I totally forgot to tell you. We got invited to the governor's house for dinner tonight. And it starts in a half hour, and we have to go straight there. You're like, what? (laughs) Oh, I just came from a soccer game. So you go straight there, and you walk, and you're like, okay, this is all I got to do. All I need to do is just kind of hide behind my mother, and I'll be fine. Everything will be good. Just kind of, you won't have to see my cleats. Nobody's got to see my dirty legs, mud, stinkiness, nothing. Kind of hide behind uh, my mother. But of course, five feet into the door, who comes around the corner but the governor and his wife? And he's in this brand new tuxedo, and she's in her beautiful dress. And so what's the first thing you do? Cower and hide behind your mother. Why? Like, what happened? 30, 40 minutes ago, you were on the soccer field having a blast. What changed now? Why is it you want to hide? It's because the minute you step into the presence of something so clean and perfect, all you can see and all you can feel is your dirt. And so in that moment, you hide behind your mother. Please don't see me. Please don't see me. I'm just so gross and I'm so nasty. And all you feel is this arm reach out and pull you out from behind your mother. And it's the governor. And he looks at you. And he embraces you with this massive, massive hug. Perhaps God approaches us in the way he does. Because if we experience all of his purity, majesty, and perfection, we too would recoil back in shame and embarrassment and not come near him because of our dirt. But in reality, he comes as one of us. He comes as a human, experiences pain and suffering, And even better yet, friends, he dies for our dirt, our shame, for the things we have done wrong that have broken our ability to be in his presence eternally so we can receive forgiveness and be made clean. And so when that governor pulls you out from behind your mother, he's not ashamed of you. He doesn't want you to hide. He embraces you getting your stench and your dirt and all your junk on him. And as he's hugging you, what you hear him whisper in your ear is not you stink, not why would you have the nerve to come here, but rather, I am so happy you came. I am so happy you are here. I was looking for you. I was waiting for you. God is the hound who is in relentless pursuit of our affection. He's a gentle knock on the door of our hearts and the small, gentle, comforting voice that simply says, come. If you were encouraged by today's talk, make sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcast. 
Again, thanks for listening to The Block Podcast.